Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to the New Books Network and to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I'm Duncan McCargo, a host on the channel and the director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a professor of political science at the University of Copenhagen. I'm really pleased to be joined today by Adele Webb, who's a lecturer in the School of Justice at Queensland University of Technology and also an adjunct research fellow at Griffith Asia Institute. She's the author of Chasing Freedom, the Philippines' Long Journey to Democratic Ambivalence, which is out from Sussex Academic Press in 2022. Adele, welcome to the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel. Thanks very much for the invitation, Duncan. So this is a book about the nature of Philippine politics that sets out to explore some of the complexities and contradictions of a system that has its roots in almost half a century of American colonial rule from 1898 to 1946. Many people associate the Philippines very closely with what might be called the Pacific tide of the third wave of democratization based on their assumptions about what happened when long-standing dictator Ferdinand Marcos was swept from office by the 1986 People Power Movement. But Adele's book critiques most of our simplistic assumptions and readings of Philippine democracy and challenges the way we understand the country's political trajectory. Adele, can you tell us how you became involved in writing this book? There haven't been that many international scholars working on Philippine politics lately. So what drew you to this topic? That's a good question. And there's probably a longer answer to that, but I'll try and Mm. give you the short version. I actually became really interested in Philippine politics when I wore, not as an academic, but as an activist working Mm. in an advocacy organization. And I was involved with this global justice movement. And many of my colleagues in that movement, in fact, the most eloquent and sophisticated and persuasive colleagues in that movement were Filipinos. And I just became really curious about why there was such a sophistication, why these colleagues of mine were just such amazing leaders. And I actually took time off my job, went and based myself in one of these organisations in Manila for two or three months in 2010. And it happened to be over the time of the election. And I just wanted to, I guess, just be immersed in it. And what really struck me was this real paradox, it was the beginning of many, many paradoxes that I was to encounter Mm. in the Philippines, was this paradox between this really sophisticated critique of where the Philippines sat in the global political economy and the reasons why the economy was suffering so much from globalisation. But then at the same time, just this domestic political scene that seemed completely impenetrable to their sophisticated analysis the level of poverty, the level of inequality, the level of political corruption was just eye-watering. And something seemed really curious to me. I guess I shifted my focus more from being interested in the Philippines in the global political economy perspective and more interested in their own political story. And especially I was an election observer in 2010 and went down to a little village outside of Bacolod City where I was placed 
as an observer, and that's a whole story in itself. But yes. that really made me realise how much the history of the politics was in the present and that it was impossible to ignore these path-dependent features that were present. When I went back and did my master's and then started my PhD, I focused on the Philippines. And what really struck me when I started reading the democracy literature on the Philippines was that how much of the literature started from 1986. Mm -hmm. 1983, if you were lucky, a little bit before that, if you were very lucky. And that just didn't sit right with me because it was clear that these dynamics had a very long history. And the second thing that irritated me into wanting to write such a long, I guess, story was the pejorative nature in which Philippine democracy was talked. It was as if this was a problem of the Filipinos. This was a Filipino problem. And it was only Filipino democracy that couldn't get it right. It was as if there was no problems with democracy anywhere else. There were no problems with export of liberal democratic ideals anywhere else. And it was as if there were no complications in the story of how the Philippines even came to encounter democracy in the first place. So I guess it was out of that irritation, in a sense, that I became very motivated to understand things in much more depth and to really challenge this, as you said in the introduction, these very simplistic tropes about Philippine politics and why contemporary politics. I mean, I can see that it's incredibly complex and almost circus-like. It's just up and down and all over the place. It's entertaining. But beyond that, it's just there has to be sort of things that drive these dynamics and I really wanted to get to the bottom of it. So that's kind of how I ended up digging so deeply (laughs) into the story and ended up back in the 19th century. Yes, I guess most people looking at your book title are going to home in on the last couple of words. We do know already about democratic backsliding and democratic rollback, for example, which are terms that might also be readily applied to the contemporary Philippines. But what exactly is democratic ambivalence? So democratic ambivalence is the term that I use in the book to describe this phenomenon which exists in contemporary Philippines but has historical roots of where people are saying a sustained and a synchronous yes and no to democracy at the same time. So ambivalence is a really interesting word that gets put around a lot but is often misused, invoked in a sense of disinterest or apathy in a negative sense. But ambivalence and ambi, the Latin stem, really means both. So it's really this idea of a saying of yes and no to something at the same time, or having having sort of positive and negative feelings that are not fleeting. And it's not just in one moment, I think yes, and in one minute, I think no, it's about a sustained yes and no, this sustained oppositional feeling. So when it applied to democracy, it's really trying to describe the empirical reality that I found in the Philippines. And you only have to look at World Value Survey data over the last 25 years in the Philippines to see that across classes, but in particular in the middle classes, there's this phenomenon where you get more than 50% of people who say that they prefer a democratic political system. And the same people say they also prefer a strong leader who doesn't have to deal with Congress and elections. So it is literally in the data of a yes and no sitting alongside each other. It's an ambivalent. It's really complex, but it's very, very evident. And if you look at the 2019 World Value Survey, there's actually 66% of highly educated respondents who say, yes, I prefer the Philippines to be a democratic political system. And yes, I prefer a strong leader 
who doesn't have to deal with elections and Congress. And so it's trying to conceptualise and then develop a theory around this that goes beyond disparaging that and just saying, well, that's just cognitive dissonance, it's Mm -hmm. just unsophisticated political thinking, it's naivety, it's lack of education. And what I try to say is, no, this is actually something that's quite fundamental to living in a democracy and it might actually be not so much a pathology but actually something that's really important to acknowledge to accommodate in our democratic life. Fascinating argument. I try to resist the temptation to view everything from the lens of Thailand, which I've obviously been studying (laughs) for quite a few years. But we can find many people there who would tick the box saying that they're strong supporters of democracy and then tick the next box saying that a military coup could, under many circumstances, be quite a good idea. You've already hinted at this, but sort of basically about politics, there's an awful lot of history here, the long journey that you allude to in the title. So why are you so convinced that the history of the Philippines, particularly that history as a US colony during that period of almost 50 years is so central to understanding the subsequent developments. Because many people might say to you, well, the Philippines has been independent now for nearly three quarters of a century, 74 years or so. So isn't that all ancient history by now? Why bring it all up? Well, I think there's this question of kind of how history relates to our understanding of contemporary democracies goes beyond the Philippines story. And I'm actually quite persuaded that history is incredibly important in interpreting political dynamics in the present. One of the things that really irritated me when I began to read the literature about Philippine democracy was the kind of absence of any serious engagement with the possibility that there's these durable legacies of imperial rule in the way that people think about their political agency and about democracy and about their collective agency in the present. I guess I very much fall into the camp of critical post-colonial scholar who thinks that these demarcations that we conveniently put in our historiographies and in the Philippines very much so. So the history is neatly divided into there's the Spanish period. So there was 300 years of Spanish colonial rule and then the Americans came for almost half a century and then we kind of draw a very heavy, bold line and say, and then they were independent But if you actually investigate that history, I mean, that question of independence is really contested. I mean, how independent were they? And also, just because a colonising power like the US physically leaves the country, although they did then return Mm -hmm. quite soon after physically as well. But even though they physically leave, how can we possibly say that they leave in the space of ideas, in the space of narratives, in the space of imaginaries? of politics and of what legitimate leadership is, of legitimate dissent is, and all these sort of things. So I guess I was quite persuaded the more and more I looked at it that the past doesn't stay in the past neatly like we want it to so that we can only analyse post-independent period. In fact, quite the contrary, that these colonial legacies are very much present. So I guess the book is really trying to do that, but in a way that possibly hasn't been done before in the sense that it's looking really at the legacy of American colonialism in middle-class ideas of democracy. So it's not concerned so much about the legacy in institutions, it's not concerned about the legacy in the political elite, but more about middle-class ideas of freedom, of independence and of democracy. That's very clearly understood. It's just a question about ideas and not so much a question about simply institutions and practices. 
As I've already mentioned, Ferdinand Marcos, who occupied Molokanung Palace from 1965 to 1986, is for many people you know, practically synonymous with the contradictions of Philippine politics. And this year's the 50th anniversary of that infamous 1972 Declaration of Martial Law. How does Marcos fit into your argument about democratic ambivalence? He's a real centerpiece, Marcos is. And I think one of the things that's important when we think about Marcos is to to really place him not at the beginning or at the end of the argument, but really in the middle, because he's really a product of the history that I was talking about. He's really a product of this kind of colonial entree to democracy through this paradox of colonial democracy that the Philippines had under the Americans, where they were being taught to be democratic under conditions of suppression and colonial rule. So he's a product of that, but he's also not the end of it. So what I argue in the book is that 1986 epic moment where the people deposed Marcos was not an end to democratic ambivalence and it wasn't an end to the things, the impulses that really drove the attraction to Marcos, especially among the middle class. But what he signifies, I think, in this historiography is a great example of a nationalist populist who was able to appeal especially to the middle class, to a lot of technocrats, to a lot of business people, to even to the academics at the time, because of his igniting of these two underlying lingering anxieties or frustrations and emotions that had been left over and were still very much present in the independence period. So left over from the American experience and still very much present. And this is where we get our ambivalence from. So on the one hand, there's this kind of real desire for dignity, this rejection of being told that you're not good enough, of the humiliation and the infantilization that was implicit in America's colonial rule of the Philippines is being rejected by this real surge and energy for revolution to kind of overturn the past. At the same time, this is an anxiety within the Filipino middle class itself of the capacity of the Filipino subject to really perform democracy correctly. So we have freedom, but can we manage freedom? Can we live within the bounds of freedom? Our character is so flawed. So this, again, is this legacy from this American period of internalising this colonial narrative of that the reason why the Americans needed to be there for so long was that the Philippines were still learning how to be democratic and that the fact that they needed to learn implied that they didn't know it in the beginning, that there was something flawed in their character that needed development. And that anxiety about being kind of capable of fulfilling democratic agency still existed and all the more in the post-independence period as the Philippines really struggled through massive corruption, scandals and so on. The more corrupt the political elite were, the more the Philippine middle class looked at the character of the Filipino and said, this is our problem, this is a problem of our moral compass. So Marcos was able to really very, very effectively mobilise these two sentiments, which are actually the opposite. They're sort of pulling in opposite directions. One is about metamorphosis, it's about changing, it's about rejecting imperial rule. And the other one is about actually inviting back restraint and imperial rule because you're worried that without it and without this kind of strong hand of discipline, the country will become even more broken than it already was. So he was able to do this. And if it's sounding a little bit familiar to anyone who knows a little bit about Philippine politics in recent years, that's because it's definitely very, very familiar to the playbook of Rodrigo Duterte. So Mm -hmm. 
it's familiar to the playbook of Manuel Cazon, who came before him. So that's why I say Marcos really sits in the middle and is not exceptional in his mobilisation of this logic of governing logic, which is about, I will restore dignity, but you need to let me actually limit your liberty in order for me to restore your freedom. Completely contradictory, Mm -hmm. and yet also consistent with the logic under American colonial rule. Right. And just to underline your point, you're saying that Marcos isn't exceptional is very important because a lot of the narratives that we have about Philippine politics, are Philippine politics was going along and progressing in a certain kind of direction. Then this dreadful character Marcos comes along and disrupts that and makes things worse. And we have to find the antidote to Marcos and return the Philippines to the direction it was meant to be going in before he comes along. And you're saying, no, he's integral to the whole thing. He's not an aberration at all. He's very much a product and the epitomization, if there's such a word, of these contradictions. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Well, (laughs) so another big part of your argument hinges on these ideas about the middle class. And we all know that classic theories of political development suggest that countries should become more democratic when the size of the middle class increases. And again, I must resist the temptation to go on about Thailand, but clearly it's not always that simple. Can you elaborate on how you believe the middle class function in relation to politics in the Philippines? I sort of try to situate this relationship of the middle class to democracy in a much, much longer history and also to try and understand it, but also geopolitically, so to understand the implications of an imperial history on the way middle class ideas have developed. And that's something that some scholars are beginning to really raise attention to, but it's been largely in the political science literature, especially largely neglected. And we just assume that middle classes, their ideas are just a product of their situation in the economy or in society. So you get to this level of wealth and you think this way. And we've kind of accepted that that's how it is. So siding with those more ethnographic studies of the middle class who are saying, no, that's not the case. And it's not sufficient to understand middle class ideas in that way anymore. Yeah, we like pleas for more nuance and more research. That's always something I like to hear about when I talk to authors about their books. So you've already alluded to Rodrigo Duterte, the current president of the Philippines, who has been certainly seen by a lot of people as having authoritarian tendencies, waging a notorious war on drugs. How does he fit into the democratic ambivalence argument of your book? Well, he appeared late on the scene. I was doing one of my periods of fieldwork in 2015, and I began interviews with my middle-class respondents. And at the time that I began the interviews, in about the middle of the year, he was still in Davao. He wasn't on the scene at all. By the time I ended my interviews toward the end of the year, he was very much in the running as a contender for president in the coming May 2016 elections. So I kind of had to incorporate him in, but In fact, rather than being a real challenge, the writing of the project, he became something of an illuminator. And I really looked closely at his discourse, his narratives in the pre-election period, because remember by February of 2016 was the 30-year anniversary of the EDSA revolution to oust Marcos. But by that time in February 2016, in the polls, Duterte was well ahead And he was getting strong, strong support from the middle and upper class. So even though they had a period of six years under Aquino, who was a reformer, who had really restored the economy to something respectable, had passed some really difficult legislation and somehow got it through, 
and had been seen as a relatively clean government. So even though that was coming on the back of that administration, there was the frustration was still lingering to such an extent that along comes a figure like Duterte and his mobilisation of this populist nationalist narrative so effective that middle classes in their big numbers were persuaded to turn to him. And again, it's very much like what we saw with Marcos. So it was this language of, I will speak and I will defend the Filipino people. I don't care what Obama says. I don't care what any the United Nations says. My loyalty is to the Filipino people and I will restore their dignity. And that was incredibly powerful in the lead up to the election and just after. But at the same time, he had this other side of it, which is the opposing dimension where he was basically saying, well, I'm a dictator and not shying away from the fact I'm a strong man. I will discipline you into line and I will not hold back on applying law and order. And it was, a again, it's this governing logic of saying, I will deny liberty in order to transform the nation. And people accepted that because of this kind of underlying anxiety about Filipinos need discipline. We need a strong leader because we're not good at staying within the bounds of freedom. And this is one of the things that I found most staggering when I did my interviews was how many of my interviewees who were politically engaged, educated, one of them was a human rights lawyer, and she said to me, we've got too much freedom. So this idea that freedom is what we love, freedom is what the Filipinos are about, but too much freedom is dangerous in the Philippines because we can't stay within the bounds of freedom. So Duterte met both of those things in his narratives and his rhetoric, hence the really strong appeal of his presidency. Yes. Now, I was taken to Duterte's final election rally by a human rights lawyer, so I experienced those (laughs) contradictions very much at first hand. But what really is the most interesting takeaway from the book for me is that at the end, you spell this out, it's been coming, but you spell it out very clearly in the conclusion. You are making a normative case for democratic ambivalence. Many people might think democratic ambivalence has to be a bad thing because why should people hesitate about democracy? How can you rationalize and explain that for the listeners here? Why do you think that democratic ambivalence could in some way be a good thing? So I do make the case at the end of the book that it's not only inevitable in the way democracies play out because people will always be ambivalent. But I also make the argument, yes, which is more provocative and difficult, that we need to accommodate ambivalence into our theories about how democracy works. I spend a lot of time thinking, obviously, about the empirics, but also about this idea of democratic ambivalence. And I realise that democratic ambivalence doesn't just come from this gap between the ideals on the one hand and the messy reality on the other hand. It's actually very much the source of ambivalence is also in the grand ideal of democracy itself. Because democracy never claims to be finished. It never claims to be perfect. It never claims certainty. It actually detests certainty. It resists an end point and it resists anyone who tries to put forward a totalizing ideology of how things work and how they should work. It always leaves open the possibility of change. It always nurtures in people more aspirations, visions of what could be different, what could be better. And it institutionalizes these things through the rotation of power using elections. So we have elections because we admit in democracies that from time to time, political leaders don't do the right thing, in fact, do the wrong thing, and we want to get rid of them. We want to toss them out and replace them. So it accommodates 
this idea that democracy is not paradise on earth. It, we live in a world which is much more messy than that. So that's the genius of democracy. It's not monarchy. It's not a dictatorship. It's something that accommodates flaws, it accommodates failures, and it allows for change. And so my argument really is that ambivalence is really nurtured within that ideal then because ambivalence is what makes us stop and say, well, I'm not going to give my unreserved commitment to this. I'm going to withhold my permanent allegiance to any particular configuration of power because that's my right in a democracy to do that. It stops people from buying into these totalizing ideologies. It makes people thoughtful and to look and say, well, is this really the best that we could do or could we do better? It makes them critical. It can make them sceptical. And all of these things, I argue, are very, very important and, in fact, integral to living in a healthy democracy and safeguards that democracy offers us. So to disparage ambivalence as something of a flaw, something that needs to be overcome and transcended, is to really have a mismatch with what democracy is and not understand the true genius, if you like, of democracy. I mean, it doesn't mean that it's always perfect. And of course, as I say also at the end of the book, it means that we have to accept the next step from ambivalence is democratic erosion and the erosion of political freedoms. And it can be the road on which you travel to a democratic breakdown, but it can also be the road on which you travel to a democratic breakthrough. So I guess that's where I sit in that place that sees two divergent paths. Yes, clearly there's a lot of food for thought here and many people might find ways of applying those same debates and arguments to many places beyond the Philippines, beyond Southeast Asia. So there's lots to read about in this book. Where are you going from here, Adele? What's the next project? I still have some things to tie up from this project, but I'm in the very early stages of still thinking about this idea of democratic ambivalence and to thinking about it empirically, perhaps in other places, like you say, outside the Philippines, and maybe not in such a depth that I did in the Philippine mm-hmm. case, but to understand where it comes from in different places where it manifests, but also to really delve into it more theoretically and to understand the implications of ambivalence for the way we think and talk about democracy. Sticking with it for a bit longer and to see where it goes. That's good to hear. Adele, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on the New Books Network. I hope we've helped to inspire interest in your book, interest in the endlessly troublesome politics of the Philippines, but also in the larger question of why democracy inspires not just positive and negative responses, but also in certain contexts, a profound sense of ambivalence. Thanks, Duncan. I'm Duncan McCargo. I've been in conversation with Adele Webb of Queensland University of Technology, whose book, Chasing Freedom, The Philippines' Long Journey to Democratic Ambivalence, is just out from Sussex Academic Press. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you.